Tonight, 15 points in five days. New polls show Nikki Haley has a lot of work to do in New Hampshire. Can she force Trump to play defense? The reality is, who lost the House for us? Who lost the Senate? Who lost the White House? Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. Dire warning from MSNBC. There are many parallels in the political careers and administrations of our 36th president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and our 46th, Joe Biden. Will Democrats jettison Biden before it's too late? Trump doubles down. As a president, you have to have immunity. Why only the Supreme Court can give him the win he needs. And face off. The feds and Texas clash over a broken border. Ted Cruz on which side blinks first. What Texas is doing is entirely consistent with federal law. It is Joe Biden who's defying federal law. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, very simply, win or go home. Just like they say in the NFL, Nikki Haley needs to win in New Hampshire to change the narrative. Or she will likely be shown the door in this primary race. The irony is she will go home to South Carolina. That's not us saying it, but one of her key donors. Home Depot billionaire and Haley supporter Ken Langone told the Financial Times, quote, if she doesn't get traction in New Hampshire, you don't throw money down a rat hole. Bad things happen in rat holes. And words matter, right? The choice of rat hole is stunning. Rats are afraid of predators, and you avoid rats at all costs. The major knock on Haley so far is that she's largely avoided criticizing her former boss, the former president. And once again, she walked that tightrope this afternoon. I voted for Trump twice. I agree with a lot of his policies. I have said it over and over again. Rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. Unfortunately for Haley, she might have lost her momentum after that third place finish in Iowa. She was supposed to come in third in Iowa, but that last minute poll where she was going to be second set expectations way too high. The latest polling average from our partners at DDHQ shows she's trailing the former president by nearly 10 percentage points. That's based on 50 polls. There was that one where she came in tied. But since then, new surveys and perhaps slightly more sound ones with a lot more likely voters, those spell trouble for Nikki Haley. Mr. Trump holds a 14 to 17 point lead, depending on which one of these new surveys you look like. That's a major difference from just a couple of weeks ago when Haley was within five points. And these are all taken after Chris Christie dropped out. Haley often says she'll play the long game. And she describes this race, this primary, as a marathon, not a sprint. We wanted to be strong in Iowa. We did that. We want to be stronger in New Hampshire. We're going to do that. We want to go to my sweet state of South Carolina and be even stronger there. It's about just continuing to move up. But this isn't track and field. It's an election. There is no points awarded effectively for second place. There are delegates, but that doesn't really count in the media narrative. And it costs a lot of money to run. The state of New Hampshire matters if Nikki Haley wants to change the narrative. 
That's because the Granite State is very good at picking nominees. Since 1980, five of the seven winners of the New Hampshire primary went on to claim the nomination. That's a 71% record, more than twice the record of the Iowa caucuses. The voters are vastly different in Iowa as well. 41% of likely voters in New Hampshire's GOP primary say they're moderate or liberal. In Iowa, that number was just 23%. If Iowa's Republican electorate was made for Trump, and it was, the New Hampshire's electorate is Haley's last big hope before South Carolina. It's not nearly as rule. There are far fewer evangelical voters. Lisa Kaczynski covers New Hampshire politics for Politico. She's with us tonight, along with former New Hampshire Senator Judd Gregg. Jenna, uh, appreciate both of you being with us. Senator, we'll start with you. Uh, did Nikki Haley peak too early? No. New Hampshire always has been a late deciding state. Uh, a lot of people don't make their mind up until the final weekend. She's actually in a very good position, uh, in my opinion. It is a two-person race in New Hampshire. DeSantis isn't having any impact at all. And to the extent he takes votes, he probably takes them from Trump. He's not going to take many votes. Trump probably can't get over 50% in New Hampshire. I'm pretty sure he can't get over 50% in New Hampshire. In 2016, he got 32% because he had four very strong candidates running against him. Uh, This time, he only has one strong candidate running against him, and she's speaking definitively, speaking positively, being upbeat, being optimistic. That's something New Hampshire voters like. And you've got to remember that uh, in New Hampshire, independents can vote in our primary. Most of the independents who are going to vote in our primary used to be Republicans. Uh, I can say that for sure because they used to support me. But they moved over to the independent status because they're mostly women, educated women, who can't stand Donald Trump. So I don't think they're going to, you're going to see a very... I think when the independents vote, they're going to vote for Nikki. And if you looked at those polls, I don't, I don't weigh much faith in polls, quite honestly. They never took one when I was running for office. But if, even if, the, if you look at those polls, there's 20% undecided, according to those polls. No, that's, uh, look, that's, that's a great... It's a great, I think it's a great point about the undecideds. Lisa, compare, compare Donald Trump and Nikki Haley's ground game in New Hampshire. We saw Trump really invest in Iowa. Haley had not. Uh, does she have a real structure in addition to what uh, Governor Sununu has brought? Yeah, she definitely does, um, both with her own campaign and uh, super PACs that she has supporting her um, that have been knocking doors in this state, even when she was in Iowa dealing with the caucus. Uh, They were out here knocking doors and really sprung into action when Chris Christie in particular dropped out uh, shortly before the Iowa caucuses. He wasn't competing there, obviously, but he was competing here in New Hampshire. And so the push was really on to win over his voters, and that was potentially, you know, a major get for her. So it's not just Sununu, though having him with her has swayed quite a few voters that I've talked to over the past few weeks. That's Senator, true. if there's going to be somebody, well, <laughs> if you, well, that, that's why we have good guests like, like both of you. We appreciate it. Um, I think about you saying that, you know, the, the electorate for New Hampshire is, is almost tailor-made for Nikki Haley, right? And yet somebody who was sort of a similar to Nikki Haley candidate was John Kasich uh, back in 2016, who ran against Donald Trump with with kind of the same themes that Nikki Haley does. And he lost to Trump by 20 percent. Why would Nikki Haley be any different? 
Well, that race had four people who got in the teens. Uh, it had Jeb Bush, it had Kasich, and there were two other people. Trump got the 32%, uh, which was a high watermark for him. So as a practical matter, I don't think you can compare the two races. This is a one-on-one race. Uh, in a one-on-one race, the president's going to get have a base that's pretty strong. It's always strong. It's strong everywhere. Uh, but it's not 50%. And so I think Haley does very well. Now, is she going to win? I noticed in your introduction you said she had to win to stay in this race. I don't think so. I don't think she has to win to stay in the race. She might win. Uh, what she has to do is come so close that she really scares Trump. And she makes herself viable on Super Tuesday. Remember, on Super Tuesday, there are going to be a lot of states that aren't Southern where people will vote and probably not vote for Trump, Republicans, because getting 50 percent in those states is going to be hard. So I think if she gets to Super Tuesday as a very viable candidate, which she could by doing very well in New Hampshire and remaining competitive in South Carolina, uh, it's game on. It's a narrow path. I admit that very narrow path because the president's very popular. You see, you sound like a supporter. Or at least a fan. I'm sorry? I said you sound like a supporter or at least a fan. And you're right. There, there's, there's some Super Tuesday state that, that, that has. She very much brings the character which we need as a party to regain control of the presidency, the House and the Senate. She's upbeat. She's positive. She's definitive. She reminds me a lot of Margaret Thatcher, who I, I got to know a little bit when I was working. Wow. That's how. <laughs> she is a force. For conservative values. That's high, that's high cotton. That's high cotton. Like we'd say where, I, where I'm from. I, I want. I, I got to get. I got to get Lisa in here, Senator. Um, I think about what 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 you've said in terms of where her power is, in in terms of going to Super Tuesday, places like Virginia, Utah, California, other states that that might have a more, uh, shall we say, a purple-like electorate. Uh, even someplace like North Carolina. Lisa, uh, want to play a soundbite from you for a from a New Hampshire voter. Take a listen. Sorry, could you repeat that? Basically, the anyone but category, like a lot of Americans are in, He's, you know, can be a little much. So, yeah, the Republicans or Democrats can you know put someone on the ticket that actually is you know worth voting for, then uh, um, I'll vote for them. Lisa, what does Haley's ground game look like to get both independents and Democrats to the polls on Tuesday? And how much are they pushing the narrative? Look, you may not love Nikki Haley, but at least you can vote against Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, her strategy the next few days is really going to be just getting out and getting to as many voters as she absolutely positively can, whether that's in retail stores, whether that's in town hall settings, um, bigger rallies, smaller settings, and just convincing them that they need to cast their ballots um, for her. And, you know, she says repeatedly that it is time uh, for the country to move on from Donald Trump. Um, And, you know, in her words, kind of the revenge that he is seeking for um, past things that have happened to him and just move on. Um, You know, she couples that with criticism of Joe Biden, that they are both, you know, older people and that it is time for the country to move on um, to a younger generation. And in this case, her. Leland, just one point. We will be up. Go ahead, I know Lisa knows that, but Democrats can't vote in the New Hampshire Republican. All right. Uh, Thank you both. We appreciate it. Senator Lisa, thank you both. Uh, And we will be up on the trail with you in New Hampshire 
tomorrow. Enjoy it. Now, starting today, the state of Texas is doing something the federal government will not arrest illegal immigrants coming across the southern border. They're also putting up more barbed wire and fencing. The feds are not happy about this. Well, there's two main points of tension. The Justice Department has filed a lawsuit against Texas calling the arrests illegal. The feds are also blaming the deaths of three migrants on the state. Texas blocked federal agents from the border, and the government says this caused three migrants, a mother and two children, to drown. Texas denies this and say the people were already dead when the Border Patrol showed up. The White House was suing, potentially, over access to a large part of the Rio Grande banks that Texas has blocked off to stop the flow of illegal immigrants. Reasonable people can, of course, agree, especially if you've watched the show, that the flood of illegal immigrants into the United States under the Biden administration is not a policy failure. It is because of the Biden administration's policy. Earlier today, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas called on Congress to work with the White House and fix it. The collaboration and coordination that is needed is not only among federal, state, and local officials. It is also between us and Congress as we work to fix what everyone agrees is a broken immigration system. Texas Senator Ted Cruz, member of the Judiciary Committee, author of Unwoke, is with us. Good to see you, Senator. Thank you. Great to be back. Is this possible to fix through legislation, or does this require the White House to change the rules about what happens once illegal immigrants get to the United States? Well, the thing that broke it was action by the administration. And, and, and it's worth understanding, when Joe Biden came into office three years ago, he inherited the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years. Donald Trump had done an extraordinary job securing the border. I worked hand in hand with him to do that, and we were seeing incredible success. Joe Biden unilaterally broke that system, and the way he did so was three decisions he made the opening week in office. Number one, he immediately halted construction on the border wall. Number two, he reinstated the disastrous policy of catch and release. And number three, he pulled out of the incredibly successful Remain in Mexico agreement. That caused this crisis. Texas has gone on its own and said, we're going to start putting up barbed wire. They have this law now that if you've been here only six months, Texas is going to deport you and sort of usurp a federal law and try and get a handle on things inside Texas. I've been down there. There's no question it's a crisis in in a terrible situation. This is the question. I understand what Texas is trying to do, but if under, say, a Trump administration, Gavin Newsom orders the California Highway Patrol after passing a law to block the Border Patrol from stopping people coming across and and give caravans to illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities in California, I'm guessing you would have a problem with that. Well, because you're defying federal law. In this instance, what Texas is doing is entirely consistent with federal law. It is Joe Biden who's defying federal law. And and so so it's qualitatively different because the federal immigration laws are passed by Congress and signed into law. Listen, Texas would rather not have to do this. They'd rather the federal government do its damn job. The reason Texas is acting, and I salute Texas, the governor, the legislature, for stepping up and trying to solve this crisis is because the Biden administration created the crisis and they want it to happen. The amazing thing, Leland, Joe Biden could fix this today. If he simply decided when we apprehend someone, we will deport them, the numbers would plummet. He doesn't want to. He wants 9.6 million to be 20 million to be 30 million. 
and and he's willing to overlook enormous suffering. You know, you, it's you make you make a good point, and that is is that this is not the failure of policy. This is the policy, yes. and until yes. the policy changes, nothing's yeah. going to change. Okay, uh, I want to get you to the Judiciary Committee. This is going to end up in the courts, yeah. uh, and President Biden has now started. I think you would agree to appoint folks uh, of a certain political persuasion and viewpoint, uh, as Donald Trump did to the judiciary. You had some questions today in committee for the Circuit Court of Appeals nominee. Take a listen. Well, political programming was at the very core of this organization Mr. Mangi was involved in. In May of 2021, the center held an event called, quote, the 100 Years War on Palestine Teach-In. A Jewish news syndicate opinion piece entitled, quote, Hamas apologists slander Israel at Rutgers teach-in described the event as, quote, terrorist whitewashing webinar. Look, it, it is an amazing thing, the kind of people Joe Biden is nominating to his administration and especially to the federal bench. I've said something several times that, that is still, I think, amazing. Joe Biden has managed to do something I thought was impossible. He's made me miss Barack Obama. Uh, Listen, I disagreed with Obama on practically everything. But by comparison, if you look at Obama's judicial nominees, they were not nearly as extreme as the Biden nominees. To fair to say, both sides have become more extreme. So I I don't think that's accurate. I understand the- the Oh, come on. on. Donald Trump is a lot farther to the right in some policies in his nominees than, say, George W. Bush. Well, actually, pause and think. I would agree with you on rhetoric, that that Trump's rhetoric is, is pretty fiery and out there. But if you actually look at the substance, all right, let's take, for example, Democrats love to say Trump is a dictator. Really, what did he do in four years when he was a dictator? He didn't do what Joe Biden has done, which is weaponize the Department of Justice and the FBI to go after his political opponents. He didn't do what Joe Biden has done, which is utterly ignore federal law and allow an invasion on our southern border. He didn't do as Joe Biden has done, which is defy federal law, do things like have COVID vaccine mandates. When Donald Trump was president, you had a tough re-election fight. I remember covering yeah, it with Better yeah. O'Rourke. You're going to be up for re-election again. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you? Th- how do you think the the current presidential race plays into that? Well, listen, it's going to be hot and contested, and, and Chuck Schumer has made clear I'm his number one target in the country. So I fully expect the Democrats to spend $100 million coming after me this year, trying to defeat me. My last race, I won by less than three points. So I, I want to encourage all your viewers, go to tedcruz.org, tedcruz.org, tedcruz.org. Make a contribution. We are at a time where our country is deeply divided, and we're in a battle about which direction to go. If things are so bad, as you point out, especially about the issue of immigration, especially in Texas. Mm-hmm. Why is this even a race in Texas? Well, be, because Texas, like the rest of the country, is divided. And, and, and it's just the realities of, of math. I think we're going to win in Texas. But, but unfortunately, we are really polarized right now. And, and the dynamic that, that happens is the left listens to left-wing news. The right listens to right-wing news. We don't talk to each other. We don't have conversations. We scream and yell. And if someone disagrees with you, you unfriend them on social media. I think we ought to be talking to each other more. And that's why we're glad you're here on News Nation. We, yeah. hope, every, we hope it's a place for everybody I, to talk. I Senator, appreciate it. Thank you very much for the Thank time. you, Leland. Good to see you, sir. More fireworks as Donald Trump talks about exactly what presidential immunity means. Courtroom or campaign trail, might they be the same thing for the former president, or at least as helpful with his supporters? And Democrats refuse to give Dean Phillips 
even a shot at taking on President Biden. How 1968 shows he and others might have a path forward to winning their party's nomination. News Nation Tuesday, live from New Hampshire, starting at 7 Eastern. It's America's first presidential primaries, and News Nation Decision Desk 24 has you covered with the best political team on TV and accurate, real-time poll results. There's a new home for election coverage you can trust. The New Hampshire presidential primaries. News Nation Tuesday, starting at 7 Eastern. To find News Nation on your screen, go to joinnn.com. Quaker Oats has expanded an earlier December recall of certain granola bars and cereal products to include dozens more items potentially contaminated with salmonella. Cap'n Crunch treats and cereal bars and Gatorade protein peanut butter chocolate bars are now part of the recall. A House committee has passed a bill that would temporarily expand the standard tax deduction used by the majority of taxpayers by $2,000 per person for the next two years. The measure would boost the standard deduction by $2,000 for single filers, $4,000 for married filers for the 2024-2025 tax years. For millions of Americans, fruit-striped gum was part of growing up, but that icon is about to disappear from store shelves. Ferrara Candy Company has confirmed its ending production. Fruit-striped gum was introduced by Beechnut in 1969. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. The Black Sea region dominates USDA's January look at world wheat production and supplies. According to World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski, Well, we raised Russia's wheat production forecast a million tons. We also raised Ukraine's production forecast by 900,000 tons. That accounts for the bulk of the increase in our global wheat production forecast this month. So how did the production adjustments impact January's global wheat balance sheet? Total supplies up 3.6 million tons. And with those higher supplies, we're also anticipating higher use. So feed use is up. Total global wheat trade was raised 2.3 million tons. Russia's wheat exports, reflecting their large crop, were raised to 51 million tons. And Ukraine's were increased to 14 million tons. And ending stocks were raised about 1.8 million tons. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to News Nation on the go. I'm Ashley Banfield. Join me weeknights, 10 Eastern, on America's fastest growing news channel. Hello. I'm Chuck Reddick, Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. We're working hard to get ready for tax filing season. You know who else is working hard? Identity thieves. Keep your computers and your mobile phones secure. Use antivirus software and strong passwords. Look out for email scams. Secure your home Wi-Fi with a password. Stay safe when you shop online. Look for HTTPS in the web address. See irs.gov for details. Imagine the hospital experience. There's a constant parade of serious doctors, countless tests, and a serious diagnosis. Scary surgeries are followed by painful recoveries. You're in the hospital for days, weeks, months. Now imagine you're a child. This is why Starlight exists. Starlight programs help kids in the hospital cope, build resilience, bolster confidence, and change their outlook. Because happiness matters. Donate today at www.starlight.org.
A message from Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. I came to Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous overweight and depressed. I was dieting, binging, stealing food, and lying about it for years. For help, call 781-932-6300 or visit foodaddicts.org. I knew I had a weight problem. I didn't know I was addicted to food. The FA program gave me a healthy body. I'm free from obsessing about my weight or food. Call FA 781-932-6300 or visit us on our website at foodaddicts.org. You have to have immunity. Very simple. And if you don't, as an example, if uh, this case were lost on immunity and I did nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong. Prompters in the wrong place. So that's President Trump talking about presidential immunity a few days ago. And since then, he keeps ratcheting up his demands for exactly what immunity means. Before he went to his mother-in-law's funeral, overnight he put this on true social. A president of the United States must have full immunity. Without it, it would be impossible for him, her, to properly function. Any mistake, even if well-intended, would be met with almost certain indictment by the opposing party at term end. Even events that, quote, cross the line. And that has been what has been getting the most attention. Here now, senior fellow of the Hoover Institute, Victor Davis Hansen. Uh, absolute immunity almost sounds more like a king than it does a president to me. Is this what the founders had in mind? I don't think so. I think they wanted partial immunity so that a president or chief executive wasn't the, wasn't the object of repeated uh, prosecutions by the opposition party. But they did have this re- remedy for crimes and misdemeanors called impeachment. And uh, and we've found, I think most of the courts have found, that a president is not given full immunity, especially when he's been impeached. So uh, we don't want a president that's committing a felony, obviously, to, to get complete immunity. But on the other hand, you have to have some type of immunity or you're going to have a constant lawfare and go after every president that goes into office. You'll have local mm-hmm. prosecutors doing what they're doing now. I mean, we never I don't think the founders ever imagined that state and local prosecutors would go after an ex-president or a leading candidate for president. Or, in fact, will be if he is elected, they will be trying the president of the United States. It's pretty wild when you think about the idea that a a local prosecutor in Georgia or an attorney general in New York can run for office on the idea of effectively indicting up. Uh, far beyond their one elected office. And look, it makes sense. You could have a prosecutor run on, on indicting any president or a presidential candidate. The, the argument that's coming out of the uh, Trump defense team, and I think you rightly point out, goes to impeachment, right? That you got to be impeached and convicted first, and therefore Congress, the co-equal branch of government, has decided Uh, that you are not immune for these things, that you did these things, and then you can be criminally charged. If we go back, how do we figure out if that really is what the founders believed? Well, I think they were practical people. And I think one thing we've learned from all of these indictments is that this system will not work if you have a person who was elected by the people and he is subject to local and state prosecutions that are obviously brought by either people who are liberal or people in the Democratic Party, all four of them are. And then in addition to this, 
there's a lot of precedents. We look at the Fannie Willis thing. It's a complete mess now. That thing is imploding, given her yeah. violations, I think, of ethics. Then we look at Alvin Bragg uh, and the campaign finance over Stormy Daniels. And then we look at Ms. Latita James. Nobody in the history of New York has ever been charged with overvaluing real estate assets, especially in a case where the bank made the loan, profited from the interest, was happy to get the principal paid back, and has no complaint. And she's going back and for the first time doing this. And then we have Mr. Smith, the federal prosecutor, but we have this asymmetry where we have a vice president and a senator, Joe Biden, who had papers out for 15 years and then only only notified the federals, not because he was patriotic or he thought he had a duty to follow law, but because his own prosecutor, i.e. appointed by his DOJ, was under was going after his political opponent, and he thought that it wouldn't look good that if he had committed the same thing. So all of these cases, you could argue, would never have been brought in if brought if Donald Trump had just simply either been a member of the Democratic Party or he had chosen not to run for office again. And that's what got that has people very angry and bring brings us yeah. to the fore. No, I think I think not only does it have people angry, I think it has people rightly scared and it should have people rightly scared on both sides of this. Right. Because uh, you you imagine a situation. It's not that hard to see even where if it's not Donald Trump's DOJ, if he's reelected, but it's uh, an attorney general in a deep red state who wants to try to win points with Trump Trump supporters who decides to start going after Joe Biden um, for for things that he did in office or for something having to do with the border. Um, and, and and then then everything breaks down. I guess yeah. my well, question that's a discussion to you, that's, and I always. Yeah, that's a discussion that's going you know, on. I, I, I guess think my, now. I'll be brief. Yeah. How do we put the genie back in the bottle? I don't know. That's the discussion that's going on. You have a lot of Republicans that say if you go tit for tat. This is going to deteriorate into a third world chaotic situation and it's not going to work. So you have to have forbearance and not do this when you take power. On the other hand, there's other Republicans that say this is a long line. These are people who took a leading candidate off the ballot. We've never had that before. They've impeached a president twice in his first term. We've never had. They tried him as a private citizen. They cooked up the Russian collusion hoax. They cooked up and they won't stop unless you deter them. And the only way you can deter them is say that you're going to be subject to the same rules that you have set when you're out of power. And yet they know that if you do that, we're going to go into a death spot, a doom loop. This con- the Constitution is so they they're at a fl- they don't know quite what to do, but it, 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 it's not symmetrical. It, the whole premise is that no. Donald Trump to the yeah. left represents an existential danger, and therefore any means necessary or morally justified for the end of removing him from the political landscape. That's that's all it is. That sums up what it is. Well, well said, um, and I think. I think anybody on either side should be rightly scared. Uh, Victor Davis yeah. Hanson, as always, we're smarter after we listen to you. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. In America, we are used to things working. Uh, and I'm not talking about the Constitution. That is the, the one thing we all count on. But just life is supposed to work quickly. You pull up to the gas pump, you get gas. You show up to Costco during a pandemic, there needs to be toilet paper. The great toilet paper shortage Define the beginning of the pandemic. Press a button on your phone now and Amazon delivers you Diet Cokes in two hours. That's what makes these pictures that we're about to show you so stunning. Side by side, 
gas lines in the 1970s. Those were a direct result of American weakness and American policy. People started to wonder if our reliance on fossil fuel was a mistake. On the other side is what's happening now. Charging stations from Illinois to Long Island have become car graveyards. EVs don't like cold weather. It slows down the chemical reaction in batteries. If it gets cold enough, well, then it all stops. So one could say that the, the lines we are seeing right now are a direct result of American policy, pushing EVs into areas and into places like Chicago in the winter. Well, that probably it's there just a little bit too early. Technology has not been perfected. Elon Musk recently bragged that the new Tesla Cybertruck would make a good police vehicle. Not yet, certainly not in Chicago or Minneapolis. In fact, it's so cold in the Florida panhandle right now that the Cybertruck would barely go 150 miles. So we might need to rethink this. Our friends at CNN published a helpful article about this. Both human beings, evidently, according to them, and EV batteries work best within a similar temperature range, which is roughly the mid-60s to the mid-70s. So the best thing we can say, the hope we can give you, is that spring is just 63 days away. We heard from a lot of you about our story on the new and incredibly lethal Chinese-engineered COVID strain. We'll have some answers to your questions and why the U.S. government still shows no sign of demanding answers and demanding the truth from China. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I think this study is a potential nightmare scenario. And I think it's sort of the equivalent of the if I did it book for what China did during COVID. Their mutated virus killed 100% and it went to the brain. And that's just the start. It's former Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services, Dr. Brett Girard, on the show last night, sounding the alarm on the experiments some Chinese scientists are doing with a mutant COVID-19 strain. Evidently, it is 100% lethal in what they have called humanized lab mice. He also told us that none of the Chinese labs listed in the study are biosafety level 4 labs, meaning they shouldn't even be experimenting with this kind of virus as dangerous as it is to begin with. They lack the security and safety protocols to ensure something like a lab leak doesn't happen because we've seen this book before, right? So the right lab mandate, biosafety level four, change clothing before, before entering, shower upon exiting, decontamination of all materials before exiting, and personnel must wear appropriate PPE, personal protective <clears throat> equipment. We heard from many of you on social media about this, AA Miami 305. It's not the Chinese, is the Americans with all their conspiracy theories. Stop blaming the Chinese when we really know who is behind it. It's the WHO organization that needs to be stopped. The WHO is largely now controlled by the Chinese. We learned that during COVID when they told us things like COVID wasn't airborne. They were wrong. They were doing the Chinese bidding. That is the WHO now. Old Weston tapped. Perfect timing for another election. 
And so far, we have not heard from the U.S. government about this. Nick Splunstia, psychopaths, not scientists. How about we don't mess with viruses anymore? China. Just a thought. Jan Mar, 100% can you say biological weapon? That was always the fear, is that's what COVID was originally planned to be. COVID-19 was some kind of bioweapon. Interestingly, that there are allegedly ties between the researchers of this new virus and the People's Liberation Army in China. <clears throat> one last one. Fear-mongering. Turn this bleep off. Here now, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, Dr. Amish Adalja. It's good to see you, sir. I, I don't know how not to be scared when I hear that the Chinese, who gave us COVID one way or another, are experimenting with something that kills 100% of mice that are designed to be like humans. Well, I think it's important to recognize that people are going to be doing coronavirus research long into the future because that is a pandemic threat. The key thing is making sure it's done safety, as you alluded to. Is it being done at the correct BSL level? And while there are a lot of alarmist and sensationalistic headlines about this experiment, I think it's important to remember that this wasn't something that really necessarily poses a threat to humans at this time. This is a specific mouse model that has lots of receptors all over the, bo all over the body in a way that humans don't. Uh, so I don't necessarily think this has a major threat to human health. The implication is, you know, is China doing this research safely? Um, because that's the key thing. Yeah, look, and you make a good point. These were, they call them humanized mice. They lost weight, hunched posture, sluggish. Eyes went completely white before they died. Um, in this strain that they created, 100% kill rate of mice, Ebola average fatality 25 to 90%, uh, MERS 40%. Obviously, COVID-19, uh, we found out, was, was less than 1% in terms of, of a, kill, uh, a kill rate. So what this could do. I, I guess the question is, you said the key is if China can do this safely, and we know by example after example, they don't do it safely. They're, they intentionally cover things up. Why isn't there a bigger push among the scientific community to, to, to force China, after all of this, to be more transparent? Well, I think that's always been the question, is trying to get China to be more receptive to biosafety norms. And we know that they were working with coronaviruses uh, prior to COVID-19 at BSL-2, which probably isn't high enough for, for some of those pathogens. It's very hard to get countries to uh, apply societal norms that they themselves don't agree to. I, I think what you have to do is continue to put pressure on, on China in, in, in terms of diplomatic pressure, in terms of other scientists that have to collaborate with these individuals to make sure that if they're going to be collaborating with Western scientists, that they're doing it in a safe manner. Uh, it's, it's really only through social and scientific pressure that I think something like this can, yeah. can change, this culture can change. I see what we say on the lower third there. Can Chinese labs be trusted that I'm reading? Question mark. The answer to me is absolutely not. And they've shown no desire to be trusted. Are we right to think that this sounds an awful lot like something from the People's Liberation Army, that, that this would the purpose of this is a bioweapon? I don't think that this is a, a, a biological weapon. I don't think that this is the proper pathogen that they would be using for a biological weapon. Yes, there are concerns that, that China is developing or has a, an offensive biological weapons program. That's something that's in the Department of State's unclassified report. So we worry about biological weapons, but I don't necessarily think a coronavirus, something that could easily blow back on your own population, would be hmm. the ideal biological weapon. There are yeah. uh, better things to use, so to speak, if you're thinking about biological weapons. 
Actually, I know that, that, that. Look, that's an excellent point. We saw what, what happened with COVID in the beginning with the Chinese. Doc, it's always good to see you. We appreciate the sobriety and the reality check. We invite you to sign up for War Notes. This is where we first talked about this story. It gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m. It's our look at the most important stories of the day. We'll have a lot of our reporting from New Hampshire tomorrow. Warnotes.com, at Leland Vitter on Instagram or Twitter. We have seen the play before, 1968. Could Joe Biden pull an LBJ and pull out of the race? Some folks at MSNBC are starting to draw some parallels between these two deeply unpopular presidents. What if it's 1968 with feelings of anger and discontent in America? A lot of you remember 1968. Those feelings exist today. What if it's 1968 with an incredibly unpopular Democratic president facing a primary challenge from a guy named Kennedy? All right. Now, in 1968, that incredibly unpopular Democratic president, Lyndon Bain Johnson, dropped out so that there could be a Democrat who would have a chance to win in 68. Of course, there are many Democrats who would trounce Trump in a general election. The DNC and President Biden's machine have bullied them into sitting out. Moderates like Roy Cooper, governor of North Carolina. You've never heard of him. The DNC doesn't want you to. Gavin Newsom wants nothing more than to be president. That's why we have Newsom watch. But he's even scared to take on Joe Biden. One person isn't. Dean Phillips, congressman from Minnesota, is up in New Hampshire right now. Even though President Biden ended three decades of tradition and tried to take away New Hampshire's primary. Uh, Congressman, it is good to see you. Do you agree with that assessment from MSNBC of Lyndon Baines Johnson and Joe Biden? Absolutely, Leland. That's exactly why over in July of 2022, I began my public call for President Biden to pass the torch to the next generation. My Democratic colleagues could tell at that time that he was going to face tough headwinds and was probably unelectable. It was so clear. And that's why exactly I called on others to join the race in the absence of anyone willing to do it. uh, I'm someone who lost my father in the Vietnam War, uh, strangely enough, right after that 1968 election. And I think it's a responsibility to participate in democracy and not let a political party dictate who does and who does not run. President Biden is a good man, but he cannot beat Donald Trump. That's exactly why I entered the race. And my goodness, thank goodness I did, because we needed an option. And I'm glad to see MSNBC finally coming around to the same conclusion. Have they booked you yet? (laughs) Leland, they have not. But uh, I'll be standing by the phone. Hmm. All right. Um, I want to play for you, and I thought this was interesting. When I watched your ads right now um, and those of Nikki Haley, someone's campaign we've also followed. Take a look. The two most disliked politicians in America, Trump and Biden, both are consumed by chaos, negativity and grievances of the past. It looks like Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee for president. Wake up, America. There's still time to save this thing. I'm going to save the the political nerd part and go, is there going to be a unity ticket or anything like that? But I'm curious as to why 
you're focused on Donald Trump rather than just attacking Joe Biden. And I would ask Nikki Haley the same thing, why she's not just directly attacking Donald Trump. Well, first, let me let me say, I know and I know Nikki knows that our country would much rather have a Haley Phillips matchup this November. I think that ad actually demonstrates exactly where the country is at. They don't want Donald Trump. And they even if people respect Joe Biden, they realize uh, that a man at his stage, considering the cost issues we're facing, the chaos around the world and here at home at the southern border, uh, he's not up to it. And I've known that for some time. I know my colleagues know that. I know Nikki Haley knows that. Uh, real, the sad real, truth is I don't real, see real any quick. way that she can overcome why? Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, real quick, why is it that you think that you go to New Hampshire and nobody will even give you a look? What, what force and hold does Joe Biden have on the DNC apparatus that you describe? <laughs> well, Joe Biden is the de facto head of the Democratic Party. Uh, he works with Jamie Harrison of the DNC. I think they are making egregiously dangerous decisions for both President Biden and our country. And I'm up in New Hampshire because there's a 103-year extraordinary practice of democracy, the first in the nation primary. People Leland here take it so seriously. They host house parties for Democrats and Republicans. It's beautiful. They show up at events. They challenge uh, candidates. We walk through the snow. We face them. We take questions. We do debates. President Biden is right. MIA. Literally have not seen him here. They're doing this no, no, no. He, he was in North campaign. Carolina today. Con- Congressman, I hate oh, to hallelujah. do this. I'm going to cut you off before the computer does, but I'm going to see you uh, up in New Hampshire this weekend. We'll chat more. Thank you, sir. A lot of people talk about Thanks. American exceptionalism these days as being gone. We have proof that American exceptionalism is alive and well when we come back. Before we go, we wanted to share with you a moment of American exceptionalism. What you are looking at here is a T-90. That is the best tank in Russia's arsenal. Getting lit up and destroyed by a Ukrainian M2 Bradley fighting vehicle. The U.S. has donated about 200 Bradleys to the Ukrainians, and they've been badly needed. Published reports say the Ukrainians were defending a town of Stepov in the Donetsk region out in their east. Russian forces launched an offensive in the region back in October. And despite almost $50 billion in USA to Ukrainians, the offensive has, well, gained ground. There's certainly much to criticize about how the war in Ukraine has been fought and how much of those American tax dollars have been wasted by an often corrupt government in Kyiv. But the success of U.S. military hardware shows that in terms of weaponry, and this is something worth pointing out, the U.S. is still the gold standard. Infantry fighting vehicles are not supposed to rip through the best tanks that Russia has. We'll see you from New Hampshire tomorrow night. Here's Chris. All right, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Thursday. We're live. So what do you say? Let's get after it. Huge case. Convicted killer Scott Peterson. Remember him? charged with first and second degree murder and the death of his wife, Lacey, and their unborn son back in 2004. Now he may get a new trial. Lacey was pregnant, disappeared on Christmas Eve, 2002. Her remains and those of her son, Connor, um, were found separately four months later on the shores of San Francisco Bay. Peterson was charged with first and second degree murder and their deaths. 
But was he wrongly convicted? The formidable Innocence Project believes he was. Why?